I have the distinct pleasure of introducing the first speaker of the day. This is Dr. Libby Edwards. Dr. Edwards uh, is in private practice in Charlotte, North Carolina, doing uh, general medical dermatology and dermatology for low-income patients and doing genital dermatology. She's also the chief of dermatology at the Carolinas Medical Center. She has, as I said, a special interest in genital dermatology. She was trained at the University of Arizona, was past president of the International Society of the Study of Vulvovaginal Disease, current Secretary General of the North American Chapter of the ISSVD, author and co-editor of five books, enthusiastic mentor of young dermatologists and gynecologists as part of the Women's Dermatology Society, as well as others. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Edwards. Good morning. There, now I can hear myself. I really appreciate being here to speak to you. I think that speaking to this group is probably one of um, the most fun groups to talk to. Uh, having people that are enthusiastic and act as sponges is always fun. I don't know if participants realize how much the audience has to do with the quality of a talk, with the feedback that you get from people's faces, but this is just a group that's a lot of fun. Um, what I'm hoping to do today is to interest you in vulvovaginal disease and actually in genital dermatology um, in general because as a group I find dermatologists are not especially comfortable with genital dermatology and um, enjoy it is not at the top of their lexicon. But there are good studies that show that about 20% of women at some point in their life will get chronic vulvovaginal symptoms something that is not yeast, not bacterial vaginosis, not cancer, but symptoms that are hard to describe, hard to pin down, hard to treat. And gynecologists are the natural person for these women to go to, but they aren't taught about the different things that can happen. And in fact, up until about 20, 25 years ago, gynecologists lumped all skin disease into one word, dystrophy. It had started out as being hypoplastic dystrophy was lichen sclerosis, hyperplastic dystrophy was eczema or lichen simplex chronicus, and then that got a little complicated so they just called everything dystrophy and treated everything with topical testosterone. Clearly, people have moved on since then, but I still see biopsy reports come back with dystrophy as a diagnosis on occasion. So dermatologists end up often being the best people prepared to look after chronic uh, genital symptoms because we are aware of the idea that not everything is curable and not everything is, is infection or cancer. We are used to managing diseases. We are used to uh, letting people know that there is not necessarily going to be one answer and poof, you're cured. All right, so this is Alaska. This is where we had one of our world congresses for the International Society for the Study of Vulvovaginal Disease. If anybody is interested in this organization, let me know. We're having our next one next fall um, in the Mediterranean, and our last one was in Paris. And uh, we have about five days where gynecologists and dermatologists and pathologists sit down, and we're, we're kind of sequestered in a place that we can't get away from. We have all of our meals together, and it's like a giant Mary Kay meeting because the rest of the time nobody's interested in our topic and we all have each other to talk to. The spouses jump in, we talk about things over meals that make most people shiver. Um, 
disclosures. Uh, this is the only clinical trial that I am doing and have done in the past few years, uh, a Tanercept, a long-term safety trial. My primary disclosure is that much of what I'm going to tell you is vulvologist's experience and is not based on double-blind placebo-controlled trials. Anytime we do these talks for CME, we're supposed to put that everything that we're telling you is evidence-based medicine and the best that's known. Well, the best that's known, yes. Evidence-based, not. Because most of these um, diseases, there are no FDA-approved uh, medications for them, not for that purpose. The other thing is that some of these areas, like inside the vagina, there are no topical steroids that are formulated for inside the vagina, just like for in the mouth, so we have to make do. Fortunately, we dermatologists are the queens and kings of off-label use. Um, basic premises. What I'm going to do with the first part of this lecture is show you how I have adapted general dermatology to genital symptoms and genital dermatology. And the first one is that when patients come to me, and when they come to you most likely, they're anxious and they're often depressed because they didn't come to us first. They've usually already been to the gynecologist and failed one or two or three. And by the time they come to us, they're very concerned that they may have cancer, uh, sexually transmitted disease, and most of them have already been worked up for sexually transmitted disease. They're afraid that this is going to impact their, um, their fertility and um, many of them haven't been able to engage in sexual activity and that causes all kinds of stresses at home. Uh, so we need to be aware of that. Vulvovaginal patients frequently get bad reputations as being crazy. And when they come to us, they often are anxious. They often are depressed. It doesn't mean that that's the reason they have their disease. Often the anxiety and the depression are a result of their symptoms and their disease. Normal variants can be confusing. Most of us don't look at vulvas on a regular basis, um, at least not professionally. Um, so, I mean, I have had people raise their hand in the audience when I've asked if they do a genital exam with their routine skin checks. And I'm pretty aggressive, but I don't put my women up in stirrups when I do a, genital, a general skin check. So I don't see normal vulvas. I only see a vulva if somebody comes in with a problem with it. And that means that it can be hard to know what's normal. Kind of like a red face. People come in and say, my face is red. Well, they're all different shades of normal for a red face. And you have to know what people looked like before. And a problem with a vulva is that women don't look at their vulvas either. You know, you guys out there, you see yourself every time you pee. But us, we have to have a mirror and at least four hands. So most of us don't look very often unless there's a problem. You start burning, you get out a mirror, you look and you say, oh my gosh, I'm red. And you go to your gynecologist and you say, I'm red. And your gynecologist says, yeah, you are red. But this person is not red, this is normal. Modified mucous membranes of the vulva are supposed to be red. Just how red can be hard to tell. But redheads and very fair people often have almost violaceous skin, whereas more darkly pigmented people often have uh, nearly uh, just light pink or normal colored, colored skin. These are four dye spots. I'm sure you recognize these, um, uh, ectopic or enlarged uh, sebaceous glands. This is a woman who self-referred to me after she'd been lasered twice for genital warts. Yes, these are large. Yes, they're a little irregular. Uh, probably partly as, a, as due to laser, but these are normal structures. Now, here we've got 
uh, vestibular papillae or vulvar papillae. Uh, let me see, how do I get mine? Nope, that just gets me forward. Um, I think that you can see there on the, uh, close to the bottom left part of this, little projections, little papillae. And these are not HPV, because HPV are spiky at the tip, or else they're fused part way down in a cauliflower appearance. These are discrete all the way to the base. They can occur anywhere on the vulva, not just in the vestibule or in the introitus. And these um, have frequently been treated in the past as wart, and itching has been ascribed to them. But if you look really carefully, uh, put on some magnifiers if you're over 40, you will see some degree of papillomatosis in most premenopausal women. Here's a woman who has little confluent short papillae giving her labia minora or cobblestone, uh, cobblestone defect. Now these pits, I didn't know what these pits were. I got out my anatomy books and I got, you know, when my main vulvar book I wrote, I realized I'm not going to get any additional information from that. Um, but I look and I see these pits, didn't know what it was, couldn't find it labeled anywhere. Uh, the patient, and when you're nice to these women, they're wonderful back to you. They will give you their firstborn. Um, and I said, you know, I don't know what these pits are. I know that they mean nothing, but I don't know what they are. And she said, well, let's biopsy one and find out. So I did, and this was the ostea of a vestibular gland. So these are little mucus-secreting blind pits that are glands on the vulva. Women can have anywhere from two or three to 200. I've never seen 200, but most of the time they're less obvious than this and they are within, uh, adjacent to the hymen. Look carefully for subtle abnormalities. I bet most of you have had apathy, and I bet you know how much they hurt. And I bet you know when you look into a mirror how insignificant they look compared to how much they hurt. And then think about your genitals and think about how more sensitive they are than your mouth. Think about hot coffee and your genitals. So you can imagine that a very tiny abnormality on the genital area sometimes causes major symptoms. Not always, but sometimes. Now here's the woman who comes to me with recent dyspareunia. Um, are the lights down low enough for you to see the photographs? Yes, okay, good, thank you. Um, if you look in the, because to me they look really dark. If you look in this woman's introitus, I think you'll see some redness. Now I've already said redness is normal in a lot of people, but you should be able to see, I can see on my picture right there, that this is well demarcated redness. Can you see that? Okay, good. Um, that's well demarcated redness, and normal redness, just like redness of the uh, general pinkness of the face when people have a ruddy complexion, is generally poorly demarcated. But this is well demarcated, so it makes you think, hmm, maybe there's something else going on. So what do you do? Well, you look at other mucous membranes and look at these white stria with a superficial erosion uh, right there in the uh, uh, inferior buccal mucosa. So she's got lichen planus. Did a little biopsy of the edge of that redness of the vulva, came back uh, lichenoid dermatitis, and uh, in this setting it was lichen planus, treated her with a topical steroid, and she was a different woman in a month. Multifactorial processes are common. Something else as dermatologists that we're good at. We know if we see a kid who's got eczema, very often there's something else going on, secondary infection, that sort of thing. And on the vulva, that is especially true. This is a warm, moist area that stays covered, and secondary infection uh, is a fairly common thing. And it's human nature. If something is wrong with your genitals, you do something about it before you go to the doctor. 
you try things. So a lot of times people have come in already having tried five, six, seven things, and they may have a, a contact dermatitis on top of it. Here's a woman who has more than one thing going on. She's got erosive lichen planus that you can see anteriorly, but except for where that redness is, look how pale she is. She is very pale. She has none of the normal pinkness of a mucous membrane, and that's because she's 80 and she doesn't have any estrogen, so she has an atrophic vulva and atrophic um, and uh, lichen planus. And if all you do is give her a topical steroid, she'll get somewhat better. But part of her irritation and dryness is from low estrogen, so you need to replace that as well. Iatrogenic disease is common. I was just talking about that. And this is a patient. I didn't do this. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. Um, I have done it, but this isn't somebody that I did it to. Here are stria from a patient who had lichen sclerosis, appropriately diagnosed, appropriately treated, but the patient wasn't shown where to put the medicine. And we all know that more is better, right? Okay. So she used a lot. And first, she got much, much better. She was not followed up. Uh, except for six months, so she's using an ultra-potent topical steroid on her vulva, and when she starts having some burning, what do you do? You do more, you add more, and kept adding more, and then she was referred to me for treatment of recal recalcitrant lichen sclerosis, and it's not what she had now. At this point, she had um, stria and some steroid dermatitis. Um, vaginal disease is often important. This is what I have a hard time convincing dermatologists to do and that's look in the vagina. Because everything in the vagina come, only has one way out. Nice thing about the mouth, you have a problem in the mouth that's irritating, it's gonna get swallowed, unless you're a baby, then it's gonna drool out, then you're gonna get all the, all the issues around the mouth. But on the vulva, whatever's in the vulva is going to leak out and is going to affect, um, whatever's in the vagina is going to leak out and is going to affect the vulva. So you need to look, and it's not looking at the skin that's that important as much as looking at vaginal secretions in a wet mouth. Looking at the skin is great, but you know, the, the vagina is big. Babies come through a vagina, and it's all crinkled down on itself, and you put a speculum in, you don't get a good look at all the nooks and crannies in the vagina. And most of the patients, when they come to us, they're hurting, they're um, miserable, and to try and put one of those big grave speculum in does not make us very popular. So I have a, a small Peterson speculum, about as big around as my thumb. It allows me to get in, get a general look at the epithelium of the, uh, of the vagina, and to get a swab. And then I can look at the swab and infer from that what's going on. I can rule out infections playing a role, and I can look for other signs of inflammation. Okay, here is a relatively normal wet mount. Uh, this is a woman who comes in, she's been having dyspareunia for about two years, she's miserable, and her vulva looks perfectly normal. So I'm looking at her, and she's got these squamous cells, they're nice mature squamous cells shed from a normal, normally estrogenized epithelium. She has all these short rods that are lactobacilli. She has not very many white cells, you should have about one white cell for each epithelial cell, but there's one abnormality. And I want you to look at it and see if you can see that abnormality. See that little thing? That's a bud, that's a yeast bud. This patient has got Torulopsis, Candida glabrata. It's not uh, Candida albicans. Candida albicans, you and I are pretty good at because we're used to doing KOHs on skin. 
but non-Albicans candida forms, of which about 10% of all yeast forms now are non-Albicans candida, don't have hyphae or pseudohyphae. They only have budding yeast. So it can be hard to pick up. So you may want to do fungal cultures on your patients if you're not comfortable finding just the buds. However, most of the time, non-Albicans candida is asymptomatic. But it can cause problems, and that was the cause of this woman's dyspareunia, and treating this uh, eliminated her symptoms. These non-Albicans candida also often don't go away with azoles. So you can't say, as I did for years, I'll give them a diflucan, and if that doesn't take care of it, I'll know it's not yeast. Because frequently, fluconazole, um, terconazole, clotrimazole, myconazole don't get rid of the yeast. That's a whole other topic. And here's a woman who's got some redness, and this looks pretty red. This is a little bit outside the normal range of red. More important to tell you that there's really inflammation going on is her labia minora are very edematous. They're turgid, they're sticking up. They're not loose and lying, uh, lying back to the side. Also, you can see the uh, vaginal discharge at the opening here is kind of yellowish, and it shouldn't be, it should be white. And when you look in the vagina, her vagina's red too, and you can see more of that uh, vaginal discharge. And you look at her wet mount, and what you see are these round epithelial cells. These are cells that are shed from deeper in the epithelium where there's increased turnover from inflammation. Or they're erosions, so you're getting parabasal cells that are dumped into the vaginal fluid. And look at all those white cells, tons of white cells there, and there are no lactobacilli. So you can tell from this wet mount that there's something pretty impressive going on in the vagina. And this woman had a condition that was called desquamative inflammatory vaginitis. We don't know what DIV is. It is not analogous to desquamative inflammatory gingivitis, which we kind of think of as being an end-stage clinical picture of any of a number of erosive mucosal diseases. DIV doesn't have specific erosions. It just has this redness and this wet mount and introidal burning and irritation and rawness and it responds to clindamycin cream and topical steroids. This is probably a unique, a, a, a dermatosis that's unique to the vagina. We need some of you getting interested in this and helping to figure out what's going on in the vulvovaginal area. There's so little research that's been done. Some more basic premises. Uh, you already know these, but I'm gonna show you some pictures anyway. When you take a skin disease and you put it in a moist area, it doesn't look the same as it does on dry, keratinized skin, which is hard for us because, you know, we diagnose, diagnose morphologically. Okay, classic psoriasis. Your mama knows this is psoriasis. Anybody knows this is psoriasis. But this is a vulva with psoriasis. The scale is much less apparent, and the plaques are often much less well demarcated. Here's a patient who's got uh, lichen simplex chronicus, thickened eczema of the forearms, uh, classic lichenification, poorly demarcated, um, some little erosions from rubbing and scratching, and here's the vulva, just kind of red. These could be irritant contact, these could be eczema, these could be psoriasis. Um, you can't tell by looking with this. Um, another confounding problem is that any dermatosis on the vulva can scar. Pemphigus vulgaris classically doesn't scar unlike cicatricial pemphigoid, but on the vulva, it will scar. Any chronic inflammation can scar. Here's a patient who's got lichen sclerosis. By the way, she was asymptomatic. She was sent to me because she went to her gynecologist for pap smear, and he said he didn't think he was gonna be able to do a pap smear, send her over to me. 
Here's a patient who has cicatricial pemphigoid, no labia minora, clitoral hood, has completely scarred down over the clitoris and has obliterated it. Tremendous fragility of the introitus when I tried to insert even a, um, a small Peterson speculum, and lichen planus, old burned out lichen planus, loss of labia minora, no clitoris anymore, and uh, the vagina was scarred shut. You can't tell from looking at these three uh, photographs what each patient has because they can look identical. So what do you do? Well, as I was saying earlier, one thing you do is you look at other mucous membranes, and if you look in the mouth and you see this, you know you've probably got lichen planus because what you've got in one mucous membrane area is likely what you've got in the other. But having said that, I have about 20 patients with biopsy-proven lichen sclerosis and lichen planus. So always keep your mind open. Second thing is to biopsy but only biopsy specific lesions. Don't biopsy a place because they say it hurts right there. If you see nothing, you're gonna get back a biopsy that's going to say squamous hyperplasia and nonspecific uh, perivascular inflammation. That's a normal biopsy for the vulva. When women sit on it all day, they get a little bit of squamous hyperplasia and perivascular inflammation, and that doesn't really mean anything. Don't biopsy very mild macular redness you're not gonna get a specific diagnosis. You want to biopsy the edge of well-demarcated redness, a bump, a depression, the edge of an erosion, the edge of an ulcer, a white area, but not just an area that's symptomatic. Here is a pearl that I have learned. Um, I like to avoid, when I can, a punch biopsy on the modified mucous membranes because you, know, you do this punch and the punch then shrinks down to nothing, and the hole gets huge because of the, the nature of the skin there that's so thin but very elastic. And very often, that punch gets embedded incorrectly, and you get back a skin tag. And you knew what a skin tag, you knew what a skin tag looks like. Um, so I prefer to do a shave for most of the things I'm looking for. If I'm looking for a cancer, I'm gonna do a punch. If I am biopsying, firm, hard skin, I'm gonna do a punch. But if I'm looking for lichen sclerosis or lichen planus or something like that, all I need is uh, to the middermis and I can do a shave. But it's hard to get hold of that thin, moist skin to do a shave. So I'll take a suture, I'll take a bite, and that allows me to really get exactly where I want to. And then I will just um, do a modified shave with curved iris scissors. And that doesn't go down to fat, doesn't sproing open, and you don't have to put in a suture. I know this is Coles to Newcastle, but be sure that you send your biopsies to a dermatopathologist or a gynecologic pathologist who has got a special interest in vulvar skin disease. Because if you don't know what something is, the chances are a general uh, pathologist is not going to know what they are either. Looking at the vulva, Skin diseases are often nonspecific when you look, and it's the same thing histologically. When the pathologist looks under the microscope, very often what the pathologist sees is nonspecific. So make sure you send it to somebody who is very comfortable with uh, skin diseases. Management principles. Here's where dermatologists are usually very good compared to gynecologists who are used to curing their patients. You know, treat the fungus, deliver the baby, cut out the uterus. They take care of their patients and they walk out and they are frequently cured. We, however, my motto in my office is my patients never die and they're never cured. 
but they get a lot better. And so I tell patients that. I make sure they have handouts. Every woman's heard of yeast. They haven't heard of lichen sclerosis. They've never heard of alvadenia. They've never heard of lichen planus. So you have to tell them what it is. And it really helps to give them a handout because they're not gonna remember it. These are big words. And, even, and if you write it down for them, they're gonna go home and Google it. And then they're gonna read about lichen planus of the scalp and the mouth and the nails and all of that. So give them a handout. Here's my website. You are welcome to download my um, uh, handouts and then customize them to what you want them to be. But it gives patients something to go home and read. It validates their symptoms. Finally, somebody is saying, well, I just don't know. You're going to have to live with it or have a glass of wine before sex and see if that helps. Um, and that is said way more than you'd like to, to, to hear it. Um, so this lets the patient know they do have a disease that is recognized. They're not the only one in the world. Um, and it also, when they come back and they used your medicine for two weeks and they got all better and they quit and their discomfort came back, you can say, go read your handout. Um, because they don't want to remember the part that says that many of these diseases can be managed but not cured. I couldn't do, well, I guess I can because I did before digital cameras. Photographs are crucial to me. I take a picture of anything that will hold still long enough for me to do it. And I don't have electronic medical records. And I'm 62 and I'm never going to. Um, I'm in solo practice. Nobody else needs to look at my records unless I put them in the mail. Um, and so that means I stick my card in a printer, you know, the, the almost free printer they give you when you, um, when you buy a camera, and print out on regular old paper their picture, and I stick it in the chart so I know what they looked like last time. And then the patient knows what they look like. And I will sometimes circle the area that I want them to treat, because women want to treat the red area. You know that normal red skin? That's what they want to treat. They don't want to treat that white place. That looks fine to them. So I will show them with a mirror where to put their medicine, and I will send them out with a photograph with the area circled. And when the patient won't look at it, I know we have other issues as well. Um, and I also use photographs as documentation of the presence of a disease. If somebody's got classic lichen sclerosis, I'll take a picture of it. I think that's just as good a documentation as a biopsy that says lichen sclerosis. And I especially like doing that in children. I do like to have some sort of documentation because some of these patients do so well that when they go back to their referring doctor, the skin looks normal. The referring doctor doesn't believe the diagnosis and says, oh, you can stop your medicine. Um, make sure you treat all the factors. If they've got lichen planus and an atrophic vagina, give them a topical steroid and a topical um, uh, estrogen cream. Anticipize, anticipize. Anticipate and minimize iatrogenic disease. If you give a woman an, uh, a vaginal uh, um, antibiotic like clindamycin and a steroid like hydrocortisone for their DIV, they're gonna get yeast. You've just put a sign on their back that says, yeast come get me. So give them a fluconazole once a week to keep that from happening. Um, know that if they use uh, two grams of clobetazole on their vulva every day, for long enough, they're gonna get side effects from it. Anticipate it, minimize it, show the patient how little to use, and see them back to make sure that they don't get those, uh, those iatrogenic diseases. Don't put creams on the vulva. Creams have some alcohols in them. They will burn anybody who has got inflammation. They will burn women with vulvodynia, which is a pain syndrome, where there's no inflammation, but they still are super sensitive. 
So try to avoid creams when at all possible. Exception to that is estrogen creams are usually very well tolerated, but sometimes they even have those compounded into an ointment. And when you can, avoid topical therapy altogether. Give them oral medication. Give them oral fluconazole instead of a topical azole. The, the less stuff they put on their vulva, the less chance there is of having a contact dermatitis. I rarely see allergic contact dermatitis of the vulva, unlike the Europeans, but I very often see irritant contact dermatitis. So do what you can to avoid that by using oral medication when you can. Now, um, we do use topical steroids when we can instead of systemic steroids, of course. And I think topical steroids often work better than systemic steroids. And the vulva is a pretty steroid-resistant area. We were all taught, you know, you don't put potent steroids on the face and skin folds and genital area. But the vulva, I think of the vulva as being like a palm or a sole. It's an area that takes a lot of punishment. People sit on it, they sweat on it, they pee on it, they have sex. Um, so it's an area that gets a lot of friction and irritation. And I think as a result, it's a pretty tough organ. Um, here's a woman who comes to see me She's got lichen sclerosis, clearly. You can also see that the testosterone that she has been given, and you know she's been given testosterone because look at the size of her clitoris, um, has not worked very well. She's itchy, she's grouchy, and she's mean. And I put her on an ultrapotent steroid and said, come back in a month. And she didn't come back for six months. And she only came back in six months because she ran out of her medicine. And because she didn't see any reason for paying me good money when she was doing fine, thank you very much. And this is what she looked like six months later. And this is after using clobetazol every day from September through April. She's got a little bit of steroid dermatitis on her labia majora, but that's all. So usually the vulva holds up very, very well to ultrapotent topical steroids. You want to try and show them that they, where they don't want to put it because the hair bearing part, portion of the skin and perianal skin is what gets steroid dermatitis and atrophy the most. But people usually do very well and I rarely see significant steroid um, uh, side effects that are a problem. I'm showing you pictures of the worst ones I ever saw and you stop the steroid and the symptoms of the steroid dermatitis and the symptoms of the stria go away and people do very well. And it doesn't take as long as, as it can in other areas. Usually by the end of a month the steroid dermatitis is gone and I warn people it's going to get worse before it gets better but it often doesn't. Okay, so I, I have now, if, if, oh good, this is not a sing-along, I love it, so I don't have to tell you that I'm jumping to the end before I come back. Okay, so you've got a patient, they've got lichen sclerosis, you're giving them the ultrapotent steroid that you know they're supposed to have for their lichen sclerosis, and they're not doing well, they're still not doing well. So what do you do? Well, maybe you try some tacrolimus or pemicrolimus because that's been reported to be useful, but it burns when, you put, when they put it on and they can't use that. So they're still not doing well. So what do you do? So this is a checklist that I mentally go down with all of my patients because I tend to forget them. The first one is compliance. Huh. With my acne patients, the first thing I do is call the drugstore. I'm so glad I'm not treating high blood pressure. Um, and I know that at Wake Forest, they've done some really interesting studies on compliance. Most of the people who've got bad vulvar issues, I think the compliance is either that they are older people that can't see and can't reach or can't understand, or that they get their tube of, estrace, of estrogen, estradiol, and they see that it increases the risk of cancer and they freak and they don't want to hurt your feelings by telling you that they're not using it. 
but remember compliance and watch them put the medicine on in the office. They are often not putting on it, putting on the right place and they're putting on the wrong amount. Next thing is reevaluate for infection, not just yeast, not just BV. Think about other, other things. Um, this is a woman who has gotten staphylococcal vaginitis with folliculitis and impetigo. That's the reason she wasn't better and increasing her uh, colbatazole just isn't gonna make her feel that much better. Um, so reevaluate for irritant or allergic contact dermatitis because people do amazing things to their genitals. This is a woman who uh, has been putting Lysol on her lichen sclerosis. Now, I hear everybody going, oh, but did you know that Lysol was advertised from the 20s through the 60s for feminine hygiene? And go, on, go online when you have anything better to do and Google Lysol and pull up some of the advertisements. Here's this woman whose husband's walking out on her because she's not clean enough. And, but her doctor, good old Dr. Welby down there, you know, uh, for, high, for feminine hygiene, always use Lysol. Mid-60s, I was a teenager then. Okay, reevaluate for the wrong diagnosis or maybe it's changed. Just like my 20 people who've got lichen sclerosis and lichen planus. Here's a woman that, who had been diagnosed with lichen sclerosis, you can see that white plaque, but when biopsy, it actually was lichen planus. Uh, the, the white skin was lichen planus and the red was, was erosion. And she's not doing well because lichen planus can sometimes be harder to treat than lichen sclerosis. And she just needed the, the um, aggressiveness of her therapy increased. And then finally, and this one's really important, um, evaluate for squamous cell carcinoma and evolving squamous cell carcinoma. I'm at least yearly referred a patient for chronic vulvar symptoms from a gynecologic oncologist and the, the diagnosis is cancer that was missed by the oncologist. So look very carefully because this is something that certainly happens with regularity. This is a woman with lichen sclerosis who had squamous cell carcinoma, she had a vulvectomy, um, and then her lichen sclerosis was not treated and she was referred to me, and this red plaque was squamous cell carcinoma in situ, called VIN3 by the gynecologists. A little plug for the ISSVD that you've already heard about. Consider um, joining our society if you have any interest in this area of medicine at all. Um, we are mostly gynecologists with quite a few dermatologists, and we now have a North American chapter. We're having a two-day uh, course in Chicago in September, and those are nearly always fun. It is great fun to sit around with people from other countries um, and in other specialties and see their take on these diseases and their experiences, and it can give you a whole different outlook on this specialty. Okay, lichen simplex chronicus, and I'm calling it lichen simplex chronicus instead of eczema because this is what gynecologists call it, and this is a North Carolina uh, field, but I think it looks kind of like kenified, so I put that one in there. Okay. Uh, eczema of the vulva is very, very common. You know, if you think of eczema as being precipitated by irritation, and this is an area that's irritated, and especially now with what women are doing to themselves, um, then all it takes is a little bit of irritation for somebody to start rubbing and scratching and set off the itch-scratch cycle. This woman has got these irregular erosions, and you can see that the, the skin between these erosions is almost polished, shiny from all of her rubbing. This is a diagnosis, most of the time, history for dermatology in general, don't shoot, 
and for genital disease is not all of that useful for me. I would much rather look at the skin first and then ask the questions. If it's a basal cell, it's a basal cell. And if it's eczema, it's eczema. But with eczema and on the vulva as well, the history is so useful. If they come in and itching is the issue, and they're rubbing and scratching in their sleep, and they say it feels good when they rub and scratch, it's almost always gonna be a form of eczema. Whoops, I'm moving on without realizing it, okay. Um, here's the woman who's a rubber, and I think most people with genital eczema are rubbers. Um, maybe that's because it's, it's kind of hard to get your fingernails down there. You know, you can, you can go behind a door and rub, but you can't go behind a door and really get in there good with fingernails, and it's not socially acceptable to rub and scratch unless you're a baseball player. So, so a lot of these people are just rubbers and scratchers. And if you look at this woman, it might be hard to tell which the abnormal side is, but it's her left side. You can see the lichenification and the extra folding of that interlabial fold. And as we all know, uh, people of color tend not to show redness. They tend to show hyperpigmentation that's both post, that is both post-inflammatory and the color of red through dark skin. And the amount of lichenification that can happen in dark skin is truly mind-boggling. Uh, when the skin is thickened and it's moist, it looks white, just like palms and soles. So frequently you put a patient up in stirrups and there's lichenification of the modified mucous membranes and it looks white and people will then worry about leukoplakia and this being precancerous. But you can just leave them up in stirrups, go see another patient, come back and it's not white anymore. This can certainly happen in children too. Often, um, eczema pretty much spares the genital area in children because that area stays moist and because that area is relatively protected from rubbing and scratching when they're in diapers. But here's a, a youngster who's been rubbing and scratching and you can see at the uh, anterior clitoral hood where there's scale and there's fissuring and she's really uncomfortable. And rubbing and scratching much more than you would think from looking at the photograph. Here's another patient been rubbing and scratching. You can see the right medial labium magus. By the way, one is a labium, two are labia. So a labium magus or a labia or two labia majora, a labium minus or two labia minora. That's cool, okay. Treatment, you know the treatment of eczema. Patient education. Tell them to, to, to be kind to this area. Don't use the Lysol, don't use the lava soap, don't wash every time they go to the bathroom, don't use a hair dryer. It also makes it hard to go anywhere. They don't have outlets and stalls at the mall. Um, uh, eliminate any irritants of, of nighttime scratching, put people to sleep at night so they don't scratch, all of the things we normally do. And use an ultra-potent topical steroid, not mid-potent, an ultra-potent topical steroid. And something that took me a long time to tumble to is cover it with a moisturizer. Who would think that the vulva needs a moisturizer? But it really does. And my favorite is petroleum jelly. Tiny amount, they don't have to be greasy and gross. So put a tiny amount of a topical steroid on, then put a tiny amount of petroleum jelly on, and that can be reapplied several times during the day. Um, if they come to you with really terrible eczema, do some uh, cool soaks every day for a few days first, and seal those fissures, and then cover them with moisturizers, just like on other parts of the body. Here's a woman who has rubbed herself raw and hairless. This is uh, not someone who has um, shaved. You can see that she also has folliculitis, and I thought it was probably irritant folliculitis, but it was staphylococcal folliculitis. So after six weeks of an ultra-potent steroid and an anti-staphylococcal agent, she's a happy girl. Here's a woman who's got probably the worst one I ever saw. 
you can see how much she has just rubbed and scratched herself bloody and look at all of that edema. And it took several months to get her in very good shape. And she remains lichenified and has to continue to use an ultrapotent steroid in this area ongoing to stay comfortable. I followed her monthly for a while and now I've backed off to twice a year. Sometimes you treat people with lichen simplex chronicus and they don't seem to get much better. Here's a woman you can see that she, her skin looks a lot better. It took a year and she's still miserable. She still says she itches. She is just very, very unhappy with me. So other things to consider after trying some tacrolimus or pimicrolimus, which I find often sting in the genital area um, and not as um, useful as it is in other areas, then consider psychological factors. Consider a neuropathic itch. Maybe this is a variant of vulvodynia, the pain syndrome. And don't forget to keep looking in the vagina. Lichen sclerosis, classic lichen sclerosis, white, crinkled. Uh, you can see the labia minora have gone away. This is a lady who wanted to treat the red. This is the lady who wanted to treat her introitus because the introitus was red and didn't want to treat all that white skin. She couldn't see the white, even with a mirror, couldn't see it. So I gave her a picture with the lines all around it. You can see she's also got some erosions because these ladies itch like stink, but then their skin is so fragile that when they scratch, it just tears. So unlike lichen simplex chronicus or eczema, where people rub and scratch and it feels wonderful. I had a, had a woman last month who came to me with eczema of the vulva and she said, can you make it mostly better, but just leave me with a little bit of that itch? It feels so good. I said, no, I'm sorry. You know, that'd be, that'd be a tough, a tough uh, fence to, to straddle. But the women with lichen sclerosis itch and they're up at night itching and they sometimes can't go places because they itch so badly but it doesn't feel good when they scratch. It often hurts when they scratch. It's like people with, with urticaria. They itch, but it doesn't feel good when they scratch. Um, so lichen sclerosis is most often diagnosed on the vulva of postmenopausal women. It's probably for two reasons. First is it probably is more common on the vulva of postmenopausal women, but certainly when the estrogen goes away, then people's skin becomes thin and fragile the vulvar structures begin to resorb naturally as part of the aging process. Labia minora shrink down and almost go away if you live long enough. And so probably the loss of estrogen makes people dry, irritated, they start itching, and then the lichen sclerosis becomes symptomatic. It's very common. They took patients, I don't think it's as common as I'm about to tell you, because this study was never repeated, but they took women from a nursing home and somehow, a long time ago, uh, got permission to autopsy each as they died and did vulvar biopsies on, on all of them. And it was like 18, 19% had lichen sclerosis. And I see a lot of elderly women and look at a lot of elderly vulvas, so I don't think it's that common, but it certainly is common. We don't know what causes it. <clears throat> we don't know what causes lichen sclerosis. It's almost certainly multifactorial. We know that there's an autoimmune component. Uh, we know that hypothyroidism and vitiligo cluster with um, lichen sclerosis. They're, they're more common, significantly more common. We know if you look for rheumatoid factors and um, other serologic evidence of autoimmune disease, you will see that more in these patients and in their families than in the background population. They don't have an increased risk of rheumatoid arthritis or, or um, 
uh, lupus are these diseases, but they have serologic evidence of it. We know that histologically, it looks a bit like lichen planus, looks a little bit like graft versus host, looks a little bit like early lupus. So all of that is evidence that there's an autoimmune component. Um, familial tendency, uh, this has been, um, um, the chromosome that is involved has been, has been um, uh, discovered and mapped. Um, environmental, I think it's fascinating that <clears throat> almost all the time, Lichen sclerosis is limited to the vulva of a woman. It doesn't go anywhere else. Um, if you do a vulvectomy to get rid of lichen sclerosis on the vulva, the lichen sclerosis will recur. Uh, one time, somebody took vulvar lichen sclerosis, excised it, and grafted it to the flank, and it went away. <clears throat> so there is something very specific about the environment. They've even done grafts with, uh, I'm sorry, flaps with their own blood and nerve supply and swung it across to cover a defect from a vulvectomy and the lichen sclerosis recurred. Hormonal seems to be more after puberty, I mean before puberty and after menopause, but replacing hormones does not make uh, lichen sclerosis go away. So the morphology can look like any of a number of things. Classically, uh, it's crinkled, it's white, you see it on the vulva, you see it perianally and gives it this kind of a figure eight appearance. Interestingly enough, there's only one case report in the world's literature of perianal lichen sclerosis in a male, whereas it's usual in women. Sometimes it'll be this waxy texture. There's always a texture change with the white color. Sometimes it's shiny. <clears throat> Sometimes it's hyperkeratotic. And this is the disease that we worry about turning into cancer, is the hyperkeratotic disease. Almost without exception, all squamous cell carcinoma related to lichen sclerosis is hyperkeratotic and in an older woman. Often begins around the clitoral area, around the perineal body, that's where it really likes to be. It does not go in the vagina, although there's one case report of the world of it being in the vagina, but I have two more to add to it. It occasionally occurs in the mouth, but not very often. Here is the beginnings of lichen sclerosis around the clitoris. I think one thing that you'll notice, not only the white color, but the edema. That's an important early sign of lichen sclerosis. Another patient, it's almost a saran wrap appearance. So you get fragility, you get purpura, and you see this in children too. You can see the purpura here on this child and the fragility following uh, intercourse in the woman on your right. And this can sometimes be very nasty, very miserable. And of course, she's got dyspareunia. Ow, ow, ow. Um, late disease, scars regularly. Here's something that I don't think most people realize. I didn't until I had one of my referring doctors call back and say, well, I understand about the lichen sclerosis, but what about the pigment change? And many women, as their lichen sclerosis goes away and gets better, will get this wild pigmentation of vulvar uh, lentiginosus. Melanoma is the second most common cancer of the vulva. It's pretty darn uncommon, but it's the second most common cancer. And there are reasons to think that melanoma may be more common in women with um, lichen sclerosis. These women do not have melanoma. On biopsy, these were perfectly normal vulvar lentiginosus and post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. But I would suggest that even in a setting of a lichen sclerosis, funny-looking pigment gets biopsied when you see it to be sure that that's not what's going on. 
I can tell you that vulvar lentiginosus does not eventuate into melanoma. So you don't need to continue to biopsy these, you don't need to remove this, but you do almost need to close your eyes every time they come in because it's awfully scary. And I do photograph these people and make sure that there are no obvious big changes. Um, I've had several patients with melanoma and lichen sclerosis, and a clinker in all of this is that melanoma of the vulva is much more likely to be amelanotic than it is on other skin surfaces. So anytime you've got a patient with lichen sclerosis and there's anything funky, biopsy it. Because lichen sclerosis is a funky disease and is associated with other things. There are even reports of childhood lichen sclerosis and melanoma. I mean, how common is vulvar melanoma in a child, period, much less in a setting of lichen sclerosis, so they may well be related. And here's a patient who has got two melanomas uh, in her setting of lichen sclerosis. Um, multicentric uh, melanoma is more common on the vulva than uh, we would expect other areas to. So if you see two or three areas that appear to be really funny looking, uh, and I don't mean one with satellite lesions, but you can have multifocal melanoma on the vulva. Um, it is said that about 20% of women will have extragenital lichen sclerosis. I reviewed 250 of my charts, and it was many fewer than that. It was only about six, and they were mostly in the children. Um, let's go. Treatment is not Timovate, as you know. I mean, it's not um, testosterone, as you know. And here is a patient who's had the testosterone. You can tell again by the clitoris. So the treatment is ultra-potent topical corticosteroids, first, second, and third line, and they nearly always work, and they nearly always work really well unless the patient presents to you with advanced lichen sclerosis. Then it become, can become much more of a problem. This patient you've already seen today, and standard treatment is clobetazole, applied very sparingly once or twice a day. Some people give an automatic tapering. Use this for two weeks and then use it once a day for two weeks and then use it three times a week or stop it. And I'm very opposed to that. I find that it usually takes three to four months to get the skin texture back to normal. So I have patients use clobetazole once or twice a day and I see them back every four to six weeks. And then once the skin is normal, you have to leave patients on the medication or it will come back. I generally have my patients use clobetazole once on Monday, Wednesday, Friday on an ongoing forever basis if they can remember to do it. Alternatively, I'll switch them to a mid-potency topical steroid like triamcinolone ointment to use every day and follow them every six months to make sure that there's no recurrence. Um, already talked about that. Um, be sure that you let them know it will recur. Be sure that you let them know that there is a slight risk of cancer if they don't treat it. Um, otherwise, same is for all other skin diseases, infection control, and in the genital area, topical estrogen if they're older, which they usually are, and um, have uh, avoidance of irritants and contactants. It is especially common for little girls to get a secondary infection after treatment. This is this child, 10 days after I saw her, you can see how much good I did her, and she had um, uh, a staphylococcal infection. So if I have a ch uh, uh, either a child or a postmenopausal woman who's got some maceration and erosions, 
and especially if they have no estrogen on board, I will frequently give them a broad spectrum antibiotic for the first week of their topical antibiotic. And I'm not having many people come in with a secondary infection one to two weeks later, because otherwise they do great for a week or two, then they call and they're miserable, and they come in and they have an infection. And then I stop the steroid and I have them do soaks and I put them on antibiotics, and then we restart. So I frequently will just throw some cephalexin or clindamycin orally into the mix for the first week, especially if they're macerated or eroded. So if they're not doing well with the topical steroid or if they can't use it right, they keep slathering it on, or they can't figure out where to put it, I frequently will change people to tacrolimus or pemicrolimus. I don't use this as first line for a lot of reasons. Number one, as you know, these are black boxed for cancer and I'm putting it on a place that already has a risk of cancer. Number two, it burns. Number three, insurance isn't gonna pay for it for this, for this, uh, this cost, for this um, disease. And lastly, um, it doesn't work as well as ultrapotent topical steroids in my hands. But I've got some people that are on it and doing very, very well. So how do you treat children? Same way you treat adults, ultrapotent topical steroids. This is after one month, and then she was lost to follow-up, unfortunately. I've not been able to, to find this child again. Hyperkeratotic lichen sclerosis is its own little issue because these are the lesions that turn into squamous cell carcinoma. So I will, if they don't go away with a topical ultrapotent steroid, I'll try injecting it. And if they're not a whole lot better in a month, then I will biopsy them. And frequently, if it's in an area that I can, and it's small, which it often is, I will excise it. Because even when it's not a cancer, trying to get rid of the hyperkeratotic disease can be very, very difficult. There are a couple of studies showing that tretinoin works fairly well for this. And it may, but it's awfully hard on the vulva. Awfully hard on the vulva. Here's another place with um, hyperkeratotic disease that I have not been able to get rid of. And I would biopsy it. Every six months or so, I would biopsy it, and it would come back. Um, lichen sclerosis, active lichen sclerosis with hyperkeratosis and no atypia and she eventually after about seven years developed a cancer in it. I believe that these thick hyperkeratotic areas even when there's no atypia are often already on their way and turning into something like this. This is another patient who was referred for recalcitrant lichen sclerosis and she actually had this large perianal squamous cell carcinoma. About two to three percent of women with untreated lichen sclerosis will develop a squamous cell carcinoma. I have never seen a woman with well-treated, well-controlled lichen sclerosis develop a squamous cell carcinoma. And studies have shown that this is a very late thing to happen, almost always after patients have had lichen sclerosis for at least seven years, and um, especially in hyperkeratotic disease. Older patients, thickened skin, either with or without atypia. Um, but if you have a patient who's got an erosion that doesn't heal, you also need to pay attention to that and make sure you feel that erosion because often when you feel that erosion, it's really firm. It's not simply an erosion or an ulcer, but it's an eroded cancer. All right, and I am going to skip lichen planus, which is in your syllabus, and take five minutes of questions. And if there are no questions, are there questions? Oh, yes, okay, there's a couple of questions. Excuse me, thank you for your talk very much. Um, are there any particular books that you would suggest for reading 
kind of acquaint yourself. Well, yes, but then I'm, but so, then I'm going to have to say that I've got a disclosure. I wasn't planning on talking about this. <laughs> um, I think that by far and away the best book on this is Genital Dermatology Atlas, written by Peter Lynch and myself. Um, it's kind of evolved over the past uh, 15 to 20 years. We wrote one that was just a text, and then I, when uh, we were not, the, the company went, went away. So then I, we've taken it up with the title of Genital Dermatology Atlas by um, Lippincott. Yes. Good morning. Thank you for your talk. Um, I had an interesting case with a lady who was using an estrogen cream but never mentioned it and developed a, a dermatitis on her inner thigh, which was biopsied and came back as psoriasis. So um, we were treating her as psoriasis, and then she magically went off her uh, vaginal estrogen and cleared up. So I just wondered if there was a preference in what type of estrogen cream you would recommend for your patients or ointment. <laughs> yes. Um, the gynecologists have told me, and I, I believe this to be true, but you know, without a study, this is, makes it anecdotal, but it is widely believed by them that Estrace, Estradiol cream, it's the only brand that's available of Estradiol cream commercially, is um, less irritating than Primarin. Primarin is the only brand of conjugated equine estrogen. Um, a little bit more irritating, and I like starting my patients on the estrogen cream. My mental image is that it gets in all the little cracks and crannies and coats very well. Um, is very soothing to most women. Works at the end of a week. The wet mount looks normal. And when I see patients back, I then give them the choice of estradiol tablets that are, are inserted with a, an applicator. They're about the size of a Motrin tablet, so they're less, um, less messy. Those are commercially available only as Vagifem or an S-ring, an E-string, which is a little silastic-looking flexible ring about that big around that women stick up in their vagina and it lasts for three months. Very nice, uh, no, um, no leakage. I don't usually start with that because usually the introitus is too inelastic to begin with. So those are my preferences. Yes. I have two questions, actually. Um, with topical xylocaine 2%, are there any uh, comorbidities? I'm sorry, I, can you hear that? With topical xylocaine 2%, are there yes. any comorbidities or other drugs that you wouldn't use that with? Do you have uh, to worry about it? With 2% with, uh, lidocaine, uh, I have no problems mixing that with anything. Not much of a sensitizer. It's 2% jelly, and that seems like it should be very irritating. It's not. Here's a time that the 5% ointment does burn, the 2% jelly does not burn. But people who have arrhythmias or heart problems, there's No, they're not gonna, nothing. no, they should not be using nearly enough to, to give problems with that. And the second thing, um, I'm not current. Um, they're I not supposed to be putting it up in the vagina. Yeah. This is rubbed on the outside. Yeah. Okay, yes ma'am. And, and second thing, um, it seems like all the women that I wanna use Premarin with have all had breast cancer. Um, and so are you using Vagifem in those women, or what are you thinking about that? Usually topical um, estrogens are not contraindicated in patients who've had breast cancer and people who are worried about breast cancer. Um, I usually get my 
if a patient has had breast cancer, I ask them to check with their oncologist, and if their oncologist says no, I have another oncologist that they can consult that will say yes. <laughs> you mentioned, yes. You mentioned uh, injecting the hyperkeratotic uh, lichen uh, sclerosis, and I just wonder, in regards to you, you're using the ultra-potent creams for a period of time, when do you say, okay, it's time to inject, and how often would you inject, and what would you inject with? Exactly how long is going to depend on how bad it looks. I mean, there's some people I'm going to biopsy the first day I see them. It's all on a spectrum. And, but I'm going to see a patient with a hyperkeratotic area back in one month uh, after using an ultrapotent steroid. And I'm getting so that I'm more and more often injecting the first time I see them, if they will let me. I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting really needle happy. Um, uh, when people have got one area that's really thick and hard, and I know in one month I can melt it away, so I'm moving to doing that, injecting it, and seeing them back in one month, and if it's not remarkably better or gone, biopsying. What's the strength? And I, use, I, I usually use 10 milligrams per cc, but I'm, for the first time, I always use 10 per cc, but I've been going to 40 per cc sometimes for, you know, even scars and things sometimes in other parts of the body, and I guess I shouldn't admit that. Yes? We see... Focally, in kind of a guttate morphology, an LSNA-like condition, very white, very pearly, very atrophic, red as LSNA on the skin away from the vaginal mm -hmm. area, often even on shoulders or legs. Uh, if I understand what you're saying, uh, I should look at that with a jaundiced eye that maybe it's not LSNA and in fact it's probably just a variant of morphia or what do you think? Oh, no, I think that, that extragenital lichen sclerosis certainly happens, and, and that confetti-like all over can certainly happen. When I see it, that's the most common thing that I see, and it's, a, um, it's hard to treat. Um, it, it does not respond in my hands very well to ultrapotent steroids. I find the, the calcineurin inhibitors or tretinoin to work best, but even better than that, in somebody who really hates it, it's intralesional, pop, pop, pop all over. Um, it, it's not common. In my, in my practice, like I said, it's about 3% of my um, lichen sclerosis patients, but it certainly happens. No. And mm -hmm, it's 8.30, and yep. you're, aren't, you my, aren't you the moderator here? Yes. You're supposed to pull me off now. No. Uh, and I'll, I'll be out back, and I'm we happy want you to on more answer here. Yes. Now, here's the next guy. He's going to drag you off. He's got the hook. All right, come drag. Thank you. <laughs>